Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology and Raw. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Andrew Bunt. Andrew is Emerging Generations Director at uh, Living Out Ministries in the UK. And uh, so Living Out Ministries is kind of, it's almost like a, in, uh, not formally, but it's almost like a sister organization to the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which I'm a part of here in the US. Andrew has become a friend over the years. We got to hang out a couple months ago in Cambridge, England, and just really just love, love, love the way Andrew thinks. He's got a great story and is such a sharp thinker. Um, he has studied theology at uh, Durham University and King's College in London. He's the author of several books, including his most recent book, Finding Your Best Identity, subtitle, A Short Christian Introduction to Identity, Sexuality, and Gender, which just came out. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Andrew Button. Andrew and I actually hung out in his, well, sort of your stomping grounds. I mean, you, you had to drive three hours <laughs> north of your city, <laughs> but it was in the UK. So um, yeah, we hung out over a nice meal in Cambridge and uh, first time we saw each other in person, but um, you, you were on the podcast, I think a couple of years ago. So welcome back to Theology and Raw. Thank you. Nice to be here again. So give us a snapshot of who you are and uh, what led you to want to write this book. Mm. So I, um, I'm Andrew. I am a Christian who loves Jesus, who's also same-sex attracted, who's also had questions around my gender. So I wrestled with all of those kind of things. That very much shapes what I do now with life. I kind of have various roles in Christian ministry, but most of them around equipping people to think through what does the Bible say on questions of identity, sexuality, and gender. So I work for a UTA charity called Living Out, and we exist to help people, churches, and society talk about faith and sexuality. Just started a, a new role there moved into a different role focusing on emerging generations so i'm particularly thinking how do we help under 25s and those serving them working with them think through questions of sexuality gender and yeah. identity in relation to christian faith and i guess yeah the book flew out uh, grew out of my own experience of uh, wrestling with my sexuality and gender, a series of identity crises I have had throughout my life, which made me really think, actually, there's something to be explored here about not just the question, who am I, but the question, how do I find who I am? How do we actually form identity, which is kind of at the core of the book? So this book really is, I mean, it's it's really very much integrated with your own story. And, and well, so I just, my audience knows, I, I read the book, I endorsed it. So I, <laughs> um, so if I ask questions, like, I don't know anything about the book, it's more for, so my audience uh, can, yeah. can get to know you and your book. But um, 
so so the book itself kind of grew grew out of your own personal experience and and um and it does i mean i'll just say it it has a really beautiful personal flair to it and yet it's incredibly thoughtful too it's not it's not it's like a it's not a memoir but it has a lot of memoir in it um it's not just an introduction because it has memoir pieces you know woven throughout um can you can you unpack? I mean, most people understand when you say you're same sex attracted in this day and age. People, all right, I get you know, I, I understand that. I, you know, whether somebody else might have that experience or know somebody who who does. But when you said you're wrestling with your gender as well, what what did that look like? Would did you see those as interconnected or kind of two separate parts of your narrative? Yeah, well, I mean, the way it's kind of manifested for me, there was a time in my childhood I remember very vividly reaching the conclusion that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. Okay. Um, I remember it so vividly because I remember that at the time, the way it kind of hit me was suddenly this fear that I would get pregnant. Obviously, I didn't know how these things work, but my kind of thought process was, oh, no, I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. What if I get pregnant and people find that out? And so I remember concluding that I have to not get married, have to live with my parents all of my life and just kind of hide this this big kind of secret. And that feeling did naturally go away as I kind of went through ever through my teenage years. And and that's not an unusual experience. And actually, it's particularly not unusual for that to happen, for that to naturally go away. But then an individual in that situation to find that they are same sex attracted. So lots of studies show there's a kind of a, a high occurrence of that experience then flowing into a later teenage years and into adulthood experience of same-sex attraction. I think what happened then, I think as a child, I was so conscious of being kind of gender non-conforming, of okay. not fitting the normal patterns of what boys are deemed to be like. My church context probably had fairly narrow views of what men and women are like. And I think I just was so conscious, even though I might not articulate it this way, that I didn't fit into the kind of box I had understood if not being presented as what a boy is like that I thought well the kid that's not me therefore I must be a girl and that's what happened that feeling as I say kind of naturally went away as I went through um, my teenage years particularly but what I was still left with wasn't a sense of being a girl trapped in a boy's body but a sense of kind of not making the cut as being a man and I look back now and realize I used to say things, I'd be talking to a female friend and I'd say things like, well, he would say that because he's a man, which is kind of the men are over there. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a woman, but I'm not kind of in that group. And I kind of even is saying things that without realizing it was kind of distancing myself from being kind of a real man or kind of making the cut. And so that means that even more recent years, you know, it's an identity question. I've had to wrestle. What does it mean for me to be a man? How do I live that out? Um, and how do I wrestle with this fact? Yeah, that in lots of ways, I don't conform to the kind of stereotypical expectations, at least, of what men are like. Did you, would you say you were or would have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria? Or was it more just, you used the phrase, you know, gender nonconforming behavior? Because those, those are two different, mm. you know, there's some overlap, I'm sure, but like those are kind of different categories so how, yeah how, no they are they are and I, i'm careful not to talk about having had gender dysphoria okay because i would not have met the kind of okay. clinical um parameters for clinical diagnosis so that uh dsm-5 gives kind of i think it's like eight criteria you have to meet six out of eight so it's pretty high terms i kind of can't help wondering given where we are so in the uk where we've been for the last few years in terms of gender questioning and gender dysphoria among young people how seemingly quickly, easily people have been given diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I kind of wonder if if it had been now and I had gone to a gender clinic and described what I was feeling, mm. if they may have died with gender dysphoria, oh, wow. even though I think looking at the DSM criteria, I wouldn't quite quite make it. But no, I think you're right. I think there are, and these things often occur on a spectrum. 
And I think I want to be careful not to say my experience was the same as someone who experiences much more uh, you know, considerable kind of extreme and much more consistent and persistent gender dysphoria. I think mine was for a period in my childhood. It wasn't a long standing thing, but it's a very vivid memory kind of in my mind. It certainly um, sticks out to me as a childhood memory. Would you say, I mean, now, how old are you now again, Andrew? Uh, 31. Would you say now you've resolved your uh, well, i don't know what phrase to use manhood or whatever like do you feel like you're like you now have a much more theological theologically expansive view of sex and gender to where you don't struggle anymore with your identity or do uh, you st- f- still feel like there's such cultural pressure that it is a constant kind of mm, battle in your mind or yeah i think i've grown a lot more comfortable i mean the wonderful journey i went on what could really help me to see which is part of what's in the book is the realization that being a man is a given identity identity given to me by god that actually being a man doesn't mean having to act in a certain way it's not something i make a reality by acting a certain way and so i talk about knowing who i am as a man because god says i'm a man through my body allows me to be how i am and so it has grown my confidence in lots of ways i'm much more relaxed now about being gender non-conforming you know i i often talk and joke about i'm i'm very comfortable with admitting my love for dancing abbey and musical theater and the fact that i'm quite flamboyant you know <laughs> I, i'm unashamed in saying i don't like rugby beer aggression all those kind of things but it is interesting and so so on, on many levels i'm really comfortable but it was really interesting just this week noticing it's the world cup obviously and even in the uk at least even people who aren't big into football kind of get into the world cup i confess i don't but i was at someone's house while the football was being watched with a group of ghost guys and girls but there is something that happens to guys when they watch football <laughs> so my mates who aren't normally particularly kind of stereotypically masculine become kind of much more stereotypically masculine and i found myself <laughs> being really uncomfortable oh, and wow. it, it was just was an interesting thing for me you know i god's done wonderful things but for all of us these things are always an active choice to keep living in the good of the truth of who we are and what god has done and stuff um, kind of was in that environment I had to remind myself no it's okay I, I'm a man because God says I'm a man it's okay that I'm not like that I don't have to try and fit in that and also I don't have to feel kind of intimidated by that that's not a threat to my masculinity right. when other men are being more stereotypically masculine yeah yeah I wouldn't say because I, I think so many people have if you take gender non-conforming interests behavior personalities as a mm. spectrum, I would say probably most humans would be on that spectrum somewhere. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, the majority of my likes, dislikes, whatever, are not gender nonconforming, but there are a few that are, for instance, and I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. Like I, I have always hated to see a death of any kind, an animal die. Even now, mm. I will reload. Well, sometimes I kill a bug, sometimes I do, but my preference would be to relocate the bug put it outside. I just, I don't like to see anything die, especially, mm-hmm. you know, a, a bird or an animal or whatever. And and even though I, I do, well, I have hunted and I do enjoy hunting as long as I eat the food because I feel like, well, if I'm going to eat meat, I better be willing to, you know, kill it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I do that maybe like once every five years or something. So it's not like a big part of my life, but like, so even, even for someone like me who doesn't really experience a lot of gender nonconforming, the parts that are, are I'm there's especially growing up super insecure like oh my this fear of like being found out or the 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 pressure of like acting the part so I come off as being a real man like oh yeah you know beat up this they would kill that animal whatever and and there's other parts of my life that you know w- would be more gender nonconforming but that, that it, it's it's I can only imagine somebody who may be a big part of their life 
has t- uh, atypical gender kind of interests, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's got to be incredibly hard, especially, well, especially in the church. I mean, have you experienced like the church to be um, as a culture better, worse, or the same as the broader culture? Or? Yeah, I don't know. I do think more so when I was younger. So I, I grew up in, in church context. I think there were much any complementarian kind of um, context, and there was much clearer or many stronger stereotypes about what men and women are like. Um, I think less so now. And part of it, I think, is just I've grown comfortable in who God says I am, therefore I'm able okay. just to kind of live that out and not be too bothered what people are thinking. I sometimes talk about one of the most meaningful things anyone said to me was um, a fellow leader in the local church here who has two teenage sons, and he thanked me for showing his sons a different way of being a man. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the sense of actually showing them you don't have to live out all these stereotypes to, to be a man and to be a faithful follower of Jesus as a man. Now, I always I know on that one, he said that to me the morning after I'd been at an 18th birthday party with those two, uh, his two sons the night before, which kind of made me think, what did I do at that party? They went home and said to their dad such that he said that the next day. But still, I think there is something uh, powerful in us leading by example that way. And I do think so in my own context, we have got better at realizing just the the good God-given diversity among people in our kind of personality preference and stuff. But I do agree with you that it's incredibly widespread. And as I've kind of shared that story of not gender dysphoria, but as an adult, a lower level discomfort with my identity as a man. So often when I share that, people really resonate with it. And I think it's a much broader um, experience and struggle that people have than we might think or be aware. Oh, yeah. I I see it all the time. Whenever I give a talk and I talk about kind of gender stereotypes and how the Bible affirms a sex binary and yet gives us a lot of freedom of what that when we say like live out your womanness live out your maleness like just that idea is very very broad and flexible in the bible it's concerned about yeah. holiness not you know being stereotypically masculine or feminine whenever, whenever i go there i get loads of straight people especially i would say a lot of women I get so many amens and thank you for saying. So I just so many like, you know, whatever straight. I don't. I don't like the phrase cisgender, but like straight non-trans women who never really had gender dysphoria, but they're still like, yeah, I've always felt this pressure of being super feminine, and I never really fit in that box, you know. So this is where I was going to say is I. I just feel like the church really needs leaders like you um, to to be able to give people that sense of relief, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, here's somebody who is a leader. They're yeah. up there. I can look to as a model of like, and I don't have to fit this box that I feel like I'm always being crammed into. Let's talk about your book. Uh, can you give us a, an overview of what it's all about? I love that it's short, concise, thoughtful. It's something you can give to somebody who might not even be a, a reader that, you know, if you give them a 300 page book, they're probably not going to read it. Um, yeah, walk us through the book. So at the heart of the book really is saying we need to ask a question about identity. We often forget to ask or overlook. We understandably ask the question, who am I? Good, important question to ask. We don't ask very often the prior question of how do I find who I am? And I think a lot of our problems around identity come from that. And it's maybe worth saying I define identity in the book and the kind of concept I'm working with is identity as our controlling self-understanding. So how we view ourselves, what we see is most core to ourselves, most fundamental about ourselves. And that's controlling in the sense of what you deep down really believe about yourself will inevitably have impacts on how you think, how you feel, how you act. So it's controlling in the sense of it. 
inevitably overflows into an impact on your life and your experience of life. And so I say we need to look at that question. And really that's flowing from my own experience that both in wrestling with sexuality and gender and wrestling what the Bible says, wrestling what culture is saying to me about that, that thing of where do I find identity has been really key. But also some other things I wrestled with just of the kind of disconnect that we can experience between knowing what God says about us but not experiencing that. I also found that the kind of bridge for me for solving some of that was the question, how do I find who I am? Okay. And so what I do in the book is to look at two ways that our culture, or say a modern kind of Western secular culture, very often answers the question, how do I find who I am? One of which is that other people decide who we are. So mm-hmm. our sense of self is kind of absorbed from what we what people think of us or what we assume they think of us because often we don't kind of know with the idea they kind of evaluate us against some sort of criteria make a judgment and we absorb that so one of the stories i share in the book is that in my mid-20s i had a fairly major kind of mental health crisis and one of the things i realized was going on was i actually had a really poor and destructive sense of self I'd come to believe I was a freak and a weirdo that no one really liked me or loved me. God didn't really like me or love me. And that was because I genuinely assumed that's what people thought of me. They thought it, or it turns out they don't, but I kind of absorbed that from them. So others decide is one really common answer. But another common answer is I decide. It's kind of the opposite. We reject what other people think of us. We kind of don't care what they think. We look inside of ourselves. We look at our feelings and our desires and we embrace those as who we really are. And therefore, the narrative goes, we need to kind of express those regardless of what people think or what our body says or a community or a tradition or religion. We need to express that and live that out in order to find our mm-hmm. best life. Both of those, I think, have fairly major problems. But the Bible offers us a better, more life-giving answer to the question, how do I find who I am, which is that God decides. It's not based on what other people think of us and their evaluation. It's not based on we finding side. It's what he says over us. And I think when you look in Scripture, with that kind of perspective, you find almost like two levels of identity. There's a human identity given to us by virtue of God creating to creating us and what he says over us in creation, our being in the image of God, being the kind of central thing there, giving us inherent worth and dignity. Mm-hmm. But then actually that we, if we respond to Christ, receive the best possible identity, a transformation of identity, where what God thinks of us and says of us isn't based on what we do, thank goodness, because we all yeah. muck up all the time, <laughs> but it's based on what Christ has done. And so it's the one truly solid and stable identity, because God's not going to change his mind about what Christ has done. He's not going to change his mind of what he thinks of you if you're in Christ. And it's always a wonderfully positive life-giving identity, because it's what God the Father thinks of God the Son. It is that thing of yeah. being brought in to experience the relationship of love that for all eternity past has existed between God the Father and God the Son. And then I kind of take that as a foundational way of thinking about identity to see, well, how does that map onto sexuality and gender? Both how do the kind of culture's approaches map on our culture, but how does the biblical approach to identity give us a better foundation from which to handle our experience of sexuality and gender, whatever they kind of may be? So you've done a lot of thinking on just the concept of identity. So let's let's just dive into the, the deep end and talk about, you know, I- identity terms in the sexuality and gender conversation. Let, let's begin with what, what might even be the easier one now is, is you know, you describe yourself as being same-sex attracted. You, you know the debates about whether a theologically, traditionally-minded Christian should ever use the term gay or, or the phrase gay Christian. What are your thoughts about these different identity terms? Are they are these primary issues? Are they secondary? Or does it depend on the context? Or, I mean, there's many layers I can give here. But, yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah what are your thoughts? I on? mean, to be honest, my thought is... 
the debate around actual identity labels has just become so unhelpful and so distracting from the important things. So, so I interchange between describing myself as same sex attracted or gay, partly as a way of choosing to not take part in the debate in a sense. Okay. And partly just just I think the debate is kind of unhelpful. There are some some wise points on both sides. I can see both positive and negatives for both of those terms, for example. But I think the debate around language, the what often becomes kind of policing of people's language of you should and shouldn't talk about yourself like that, which sometimes leads people like me thinking, how on earth am I meant to articulate the reality of my experience? I need some language. Give me some language. Let me have some language in a sense. But actually, my big worry really is those things which which I think are, are just words and can just be descriptions of experiences, mm. not statements of right. core self. I think actually that that debate gets in the way of us thinking, how do we, there are some real people here who Jesus loves and we should love, who might well be having some real things they're wrestling with, real difficulties. Our priority wants to be loving the people, not getting caught up in the language they're using. So yeah. on the actual thing of language, I just kind of think the debate has become so unhelpful because it's become for some people the the presenting issue and kind of the stopping point of the conversation, not actually just the language we need to have in order mm -hmm. to have a proper conversation about real people. Yeah. And so for me, I'm not so concerned what language we do or don't use. I'm concerned about, I think it's important we think about how we conceptualize ourselves because that does have an impact on our life, that controlling self-understanding I talk about. I think it does influence how we're able to live out biblical teaching well, but I don't want to get hung up on language as the kind of be all and end all in that reality. So kind of it depends on what you mean. What's the meaning behind the, the language, not the language itself, right? Like I, I could say, exactly, yeah. I could say I'm an American. Somebody else can say I, I'm an American. And the, the, the value invested in that same phrase could be wildly different. I'm just making a, an objective statement of fact about my nationality where somebody else could mean that as my all controlling primary identity is that I'm American. Everything else is subservient to that. That's how, yeah. And I, I've, again, just anecdotally, I've seen that with the word gay or gay Christian or whatever. Do you find that it's, is this as much of a debate in the, in the churches in, in the UK or is it, do you find that it's primarily an American no. kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a debate over here. Sometimes just because people are aware it's a debate over the States. Okay. They're reading books. Um, by <laughs> you get kind of on the extreme ends on both sides you would get a minority of people who feel very strongly either way, who either think, no, I okay. absolutely mustn't refer to myself as gay. That's you no know, conceding too much ground to my experience, making it my core sense of self. The other end, you get people who very much object to the language of same-sex attraction, because either because they feel it's too much trying to distance um, ourselves from the reality of being gay, as they would put it, or because it's kind of tied up with a history in the ex-gay movement and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that would be kind of, though you would get those kind of perspectives, but they are quite kind of, in a sense, the extreme ends of a spectrum where most people, I think, are somewhat more, okay. more relaxed. Yeah. Um, and, and my observation is that when I get asked about it, whether in personal conversation or kind of a Q&A &A context or at a church or an event or something, very often, actually, the question isn't being asked because the person feels really strongly on one end. It's just they know some people feel really strongly, so they're interested. And so interestingly, I think, in a sense, it's an intellectual debate people know exists, so they're interested in the UK more than actually something they really have a strong okay. view on on their one side or the other, okay. which I do consider is a a blessing we have over here. It doesn't yeah. tend to get so fraught and so difficult. I really prefer British evangelicalism <laughs> to American. <laughs> even I, I felt so at home when I was living there. Just like, I don't know. It was just, 
it's hard to describe. It was just people are able to have good, healthy, dis- disagreeable discussions and then go to the pub after and hang out. And like there is this, they love to kind of wrestle with the intellectual side of things without taking it personally. And you just don't have the politicalization of the evangelical church. Like yeah, that's the big in thing. America. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, a huge. I remember coming back after living in Scotland for three and a half years, like coming back and like, like I was like back in the wild, wild west again. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot how stressful this is, you know? Like maybe it's there's a lot fewer churches and Christians, right? In 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 the UK. So you have this really strong, kind of more secular environment. So that and, and that often fosters, you know, more camaraderie across denominational lines. Like in Aberdeen, when I was in Aberdeen, there was, you know, a hand, a small handful of solid Bible-believing churches. Some were Presbyterian, some were Baptist, some were non-denominational. But it's almost like you didn't even care or know. Like, if you're a gospel-centered believer, you're like, oh, man, you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, I miss that. Yeah, I, I miss that environment. Let, let's, uh, okay, so let's let's talk about the uh, different gender identities. Where do I even start? So, I mean, you know, you have tr- trans, transgender as kind of, can be kind of, almost like an umbrella label in, in some ways, but then you have, especially among younger, you work with younger people. So, I mean, you know, g- gender, uh, gender fluid, uh, non-binary, uh, and uh, many others. Do you find those labels to be neutral, helpful, or not helpful? Um, and I don't know if I'm framing that the best way, but just to kind of <laughs> get our conversation going. Yeah. It's yeah, I think it's such a difficult. One. I mean, with the caveat of again not wanting to police people's language, I think it's unhelpful. But I think the question you're asking is good actually. Are these terms yeah helpful both for communication and for individuals and their self conceptualization? I, I think it varies. You know, I think so. Even I think my own experience. I think well, I know that experience of feeling internally like one sense of being a man or woman doesn't match with the external body. I know that can be very real. And so therefore, I want to say, well, yeah, absolutely, there should be language to describe that and kind of conceptualize of that. Mm. Um, but again, I think it'd be unhelpful for us to build our core sense of self on that. And my theological position would be that to allow our internal sense to trump the objective reality of the biology God is giving us is not the right way to conceive a thing. So it partly depends yeah, in how is someone using those terms would be one of the, the things and the kind of cautions I'd have in mind or questions in mind. With young people, I think it is very significant. We're in the situation over here where for years now, young people have been told through kind of influences and social media and such like, but also through school, that they might be one of this real plethora of gender identity labels and they need to work that out. And the expectation was is there'll be a label to describe their not quite unique experience, but their personal individual experience. And I think that has been unhelpful. I think it's a helpful pressure for young people. There's this is pressure to to label yourself. And there's just this weird contrast, isn't there? On the one hand, there's a lot of people saying it's not about labels, it's about being yourself. Yeah. And yet the kind of pressure to find mm, your label yeah. and to come out to announce that is kind of huge. So I think I'm worried for young people about the the pressure it puts on them, especially around the gender question, as so we're seeing over here. But also I'm worried about the impact it has on a young person's self-conception but also the ongoing experience so as you'll probably be aware over here at the moment there are healthy questions being asked about the way we offer particularly kind of medical treatment and clinical support to under 18s who are questioning their gender and one of the things that's come out from the review of the nhs that's our national health services kind of um 
treatment of and services for under 18s is that even kind of changing names and pronouns and stuff is now being seen as a significant psychosocial intervention which does make it less likely that a young person will find their discomfort with their gender naturally abates of its own accord I wonder if the same is therefore true of these labels. If someone labels themselves as, for example, non-binary and kind of consistently refers themselves as that, has other people recognised that and announced that, I wonder if in the same way that we now know that changing name or pronouns could have an ongoing impact on the continuation of that experience, if the same could be true of those mm -hmm. labels. And so when it comes to sexuality or gender, I kind of encourage young people particularly just to feel no pressure to find a label and kind mm -hmm. of self-describe or self-identify and no need to kind of tie things down to, well, this is the label that describes me. Because it is true, essentially, labels don't matter. Your experience might change over time. Many of us find it does. You don't need to pocket yourself into a little corner of, here's the label. So I kind of want to balance it of, yeah, we need language to describe experiences. And that's really important. And we don't want to suggest experiences aren't genuine, which sometimes they really are. And we want to validate the mm -hmm. pain, the difficulty, the struggle of that. But also not have language which is unhelpfully mm -hmm. forming people's sense of self or, yeah, potentially doing them harm in the long term. Very that's, difficult nuance to yeah. get, I think. That is so. That's the incredibly insightful two-minute summary of a complex topic. And it, I, I totally, if I, I, I don't want to just repeat everything you said because I agree pretty much everything. I think everything you said, like just not the, leading with the idea of not policing language, not making that kind of the end all. And yet, yeah, I, I, I see it. I mean, I think the anxiety that can come about of trying to this pressure, this cultural pressure to find out who you are, and and the 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 list of possibilities keeps expanding um rather than just being a male or a female with you know um who might be attracted to men or women or both or neither um beyond that you know you're a human and you have a range of interests and likes and dislikes and so sometimes it i don't mm -hmm. i don't want i don't want to well, let, let me affirm one more thing so i have friends that you know finding that for instance a friend that you know had you know, moderate to sometimes severe gender dysphoria when she, you know, the word and same sex attracted, but the word lesbian didn't fit because it had too much femininity kind of infused in it. And so when she discovered the word transgender, it was just the way she describes like the life giving power of knowing that I'm not some freak of nature, that there's actually a word that Mm. describes my experience and for her to describe how liberating that was like that's it's so good for someone like me to hear that you know and, and to see so yeah. okay i can totally see that because i just most people that don't wrestle with their sexuality or gender they just mock and dismiss and roll their eyes at all the identity labels and i could let's be honest i mean when there's like you know hundreds of different after a while you, you kind of how do you not you know kind of roll your eyes but like being genuinely curious about how some of these labels can be genuinely life-giving to, to and, and maybe it's a temporary thing too. Maybe it's just as they're trying to figure themselves out, a label can be helpful for us as maybe a season in life. Having said that, I've just seen, especially with younger people. Yeah. Just that anxiety surrounding discovering who they are and, and a quest for uniqueness and meaning in life and, like you said, is I, I, every study I've read says that you know identities and and pronouns and other things are a form of like social mm. transitioning. Which every study I've seen, somebody who socially transitions that can that's a very strong push towards other more medical 
interventions. And that's when I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, um, that's something that just a sexuality conversation doesn't have to deal with, you know, okay, you're, you're gay, yeah. you call yourself gay, yeah. you're same sex attractive, whatever, but there's, there's no like next step medicalization that, you know, you're playing, you're playing with here, which can be super, well, not good for teenagers to engage in, but, um, is it too, I mean, some, some of the identity labels, they seem almost like just describing personalities. And again, I'm not saying this across the board for everybody, but like, um, something like, you know, gender fluid. I know people can use it in different ways. It's like, you know, some, some days I feel more masculine, some days more feminine. You kind of have somebody unpack that. And it's kind of like, that's just, that's just kind of a con, like, do you need a label to describe just what is some days I'm kind of like to wear black and go emo. Other times I might resonate with a stereotype that matches my biological sex and like, cool, great. You're human. Like you're, there's probably a lot of people, probably a lot of people feel gender fluid, you know? I I mean, as I, as I try to wrap my mind around what people mean by that term, am I missing? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think again, this is one of the differences between the sexuality conversation, the gender conversation. One of the reasons that people haven't had experience around gender, find it hard to understand is sexuality is a part of human experience that has quite concrete impacts on us, even biological impacts on us that we can kind of see and recognize. And almost every adult human can kind of relate to those gender. We can't so much. And it is, you know, to be sexually attracted to someone, most of us can conceive what that means to be, for example, a male bodied person who feels like a woman. It's very hard to articulate what that means. Of course, then we get into some of the more philosophical problems as well. You know, often the definition is a woman is someone who feels like a woman. Well, that's a circular definition. What does it mean to feel like a woman? And so often, once we do um, kind of uproot things or uh, take the body out of the equation, once we do go to what I call an I decide identity, rooted in what we feel inside as to whether we're a man or a woman, there's pretty much nothing other than stereotypes of what men and women are like on which to build that definition. What's it mean to feel like a man or woman? There's not much other than stereotypes to kind of um, attach that onto. And stereotypes are primarily about personality and about preferences. So I I think you're right. Very often when you hear people describe what does it mean for them to feel non-binary, say, or gender fluid, say, it is actually about personality and preferences, which when I think it through, I think isn't all that surprising. Now, I also want to bring in the kind of pastoral side of I remember how vividly I did feel like I was a girl trapped in a boy's body I mm. I really even though I look back now and realize that was me being shaped and influenced I think by mm. stereotypes that experience was very real so what I don't want to say is all oh, this is so absurd that people are questioning their gender when all these have a different personality I don't want to be mm. insensitive or kind of naive like that but I do want to say I think a better way of helping people isn't to say, yes, your personality and preferences do reveal who you are as a man or woman and either in a way which we just can't articulate what that even means, therefore, to right. be a man or woman. And I think it does raise some fairly mm-hmm. serious issues about particularly protection of women's rights and stuff. Rather right. than affirming that, I think actually it's to affirm no, actually, it's okay that you are a male-bodied person who likes really different things to other male-bodied people or who uh, has really different kind of personality. That sense of freedom of, I can just be myself. And actually, isn't it amazing that God's created such a diverse humanity and in our real diversity, even on the level of personality preferences? Doesn't that make him look even better? Doesn't that show something the beauty and the creativity of God? And then when actually these diverse uh, personality and preference people kind of unite as the people of God and worship, isn't that amazing? Amazing. That's actually a really yeah, yeah. beautiful thing to be claimed here about how different we all are in the way God has made us, which 
is actually flowing from a solid identity, but things that are different about us that kind of describe us don't define us. And I think actually it's much more freeing and life-giving for us to approach it that way. And I do think brings glory to God as well. Yeah. So when you say, when if you can go back in time and like when you truly felt like you were a woman trapped in a man's, a boy's body, like, why did you think that? And can you describe why you thought that without falling into stereotypes? I don't think I can without falling into stereotypes. No, I think I was just so aware of not yeah, fitting into or not being like other boys. I never connected to boys. I had pretty much no close friends who were boys as a kid. You know, at school, I was the one lone boy trying and failing to do handstands with the girls while all the boys were playing football. All my close friends were girls. I never felt comfortable with guys or felt comfortable with girls. Lots of these things just kind of made me you know, look around and think, well, all these things kind of tick the boxes for what girls are like not for what boys are like. So I don't think there's anything outside of stereotypes that I could personally have right. um, identified as different. And I, and I don't even, because this is my, with things like, you know, gender identity, your internal sense of self as male, female, both or neither, uh, gender expression, how you express yourself, gender role, you know, do you fit into the masculine or feminine expectations of being a man? Or, so even these real textbook definitions of gender and gender identity, expression, role, it's like they all seem to be connected to gender stereotypes just intrinsically. Like you can't even explain any of them, really unpack them on a definitional level without latching onto or depending upon stereotypes to give your explanation meaning. And I don't say that. To, here's the thing. Like sometimes when people roll their eyes and gender stereotype, I'm not denying the social psychological power of stereotypes. I mean, it, I think it can create, if not influence or cultivate gender dysphoria not not that it's all that but i mean i think that can play a role so i to 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 say there's a social uh social factor here with stereotypes is not to diminish the profound experience at all it's just to kind of maybe maybe to unravel some of the philosophical underpinnings of some of these identities maybe you know i don't know yeah and i think yeah i agree i don't want to undermine or um invalidate the experience at all and and i don't i don't even want to say that gender dysphoria is always right with stereotypes. No, I, don't, no. I don't think that chimes a lot of people's experience. And I know just because that was my experience, so I said I wouldn't have classified as gender dysphoric for diagnosis. I don't think that's the universal thing. And although I don't think there's yet evidence of it, I'm very open to the fact there could be biological factors, uh, physiological factors, which lead someone to have that experience. It still leaves open the question of how do you best respond to that experience? And also the question of how do we define what a man and woman is? They, you know, they are related but separate questions and so even if we found say a physiological biological influence which was clearly influencing someone's um experience of gender incongruence that wouldn't suddenly solve all the questions about how do you live in light of that mm-hmm. what does it mean to be man or woman yeah. and so it's always and that's why i think we've done badly often in these christian conversations around this of we aren't good at separate separating out the reality of experience which in a world marred by sin for all of us will be messy in every area of life we should expect messiness complexity things not to be straightforward we need to separate out that from kind of actually what reality is and god's good word and good plan and good guidance and then also from what does christian faithfulness look like for those of us who do want to follow jesus it's when we won't do the hard work of kind of parsing those out that i think we get bad answers and often particularly insensitive answers and approaches yeah so yeah you work with i mean young, younger people so in in your in the work that you do do you find 
this kind of quest? Do, do you find it pretty popular to kind of figure out who you are and and people exploring different labels? Is that fairly common in the in the work that you do? And if so, or even if it's not common, just in the people that are on that quest to kind of who am I? You know, um, do you find that that's not helping them and just finding meaning and flourishing in life? Um, is it typically a hindrance? And Yeah, as I, as I talk to youth leaders, you know, I, I never talk to a youth leader in the UK who doesn't have one or more young right. people in their youth group who are in some way questioning their gender. You know, you wouldn't find a teenager in the UK who doesn't know multiple um, peers, friends right. at school or college, or whatever, who are questioning their gender, identifying as trans or whatever. I don't, I don't know if there's the firm evidence, but I do strongly suspect that where... So over here, we're seeing a huge mental health crisis among young people. There were multiple factors in that, absolutely no doubt. I am pretty much convinced one of those will be this kind of pressure to work out who you are, pressure to reach that conclusion, pressure to announce that, live that out. And it links mm -hmm. to identity stuff. We're told we need to find our best identity. And we're told, young people are told that's who they are inside because it's by embracing that and living out that you live your best life. Mm -hmm. And so the young people are living with this sense of if I don't actually work out who I am, I'm going to miss out on my best life. And, you know, the the you kind of get the influencers online who realize they're trans, start taking testosterone, had a mastectomy, life is suddenly wonderful. They're living their best life. And it's the wonderful, glossy Instagram, TikTok, TikTok uh, YouTube world, which looks so appealing and makes us all think that is the pinnacle of best life and fulfillment in life. Mm -hmm. And young people, it just reaffirms this message of I've got to work out who I am so I can live out because look how happy they are. That's the way you find true happiness. It is ultimately a salvation narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to church and there's a better salvation narrative in response to that. And one of the reasons it's so good is there's no pressure to work out who you are. Actually, you get to receive who you are as a gift. You can know who you are. You can know that you're loved. You can know you're accepted, know you're delighted over, not basing anything you do or what you find inside, based as a gift, based on what God has done in sending Christ. That's wonderfully good news for us to offer to people under this pressure to try and find the best identity and the best life. And maybe it'd be helpful. I mean, ident identity, especially as there's so many different identity labels now, when, especially when teenagers are trying to figure out which identity they fit into, do they, do you find that they know that in almost every case, these identity labels, except for maybe gay, straight, maybe bisexual, almost every other one is temporary, right? I mean, I mean, that's just an observation. Like, how many fifteen-year-old girls who identify as non-binary will have that same exact label till they're forty-eight? You know, like, yeah, yeah. Just factually, it's just a very small percent. I mean, Lisa Diamond did, you know, a, a ten-year longitudinal study on a hundred non-straight women, and I think it. Don't quote me on this, but it's you might be able to quote me on this. I have it written down somewhere. I think it was something like three percent. Of those 100 non-straight women yeah, identified yeah. the same way because every two years she would check in and kind of do a review and even yeah. their sex i mean let alone their sexual exploration was kind of all over the map to where at the end people were like i don't know who you know i was a lesbian 10 years ago and then i said i was bisexual and then i fell in love with a man who you know wasn't actually wasn't a jerk you know and then now i've got two kids and i don't know what's going on i'm just a human you know mm -hmm. but i this is where i feel like if the identity label is as real thin. It's not like a strong ontological. This is the kind of human I am and will always be. Um, if it's understood that this is just a way I'm trying to name my experience right now, as I'm going through just the chaos of teenagehood, you know, 
But I don't see it. It does seem to be like, no, there's all these different subcategories of being human. You need to figure out which one you are. And that I just. Yeah, I think well, if it was just describing experience, that's potentially helpful. because It is helpful sometimes to describe experience. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to say in the book is these things can be real realities. They can be descriptions sure. of our human experience. And we want to recognize and acknowledge them and wrestle with how do we best respond to those. But they don't have to define who we are. And the unhelpful thing is when we say this is core to who I am, this is my controlling self-understanding, and therefore I must kind of fully embrace this and live this out to define my best life. I think what's also interesting, there's this kind of confusing inconsistency of there's, well, of two things. One, there's the narrative of you must look inside yourself, find who you are, live out, find your best life, which kind of implies you'll find one static thing. But at the same time, of course, we're seeing a proliferation of fluid identities and young people being quite open to that and you're right often a kind of you know often there's even as you know kind of a, a specific um progression of often it's kind of bisexual to non-binary to trans identifying mm-hmm. and i think that's interesting there is an openness to young people about labels changing but i think it's usually in one direction not in the other okay. you know barely ever do you hear a young person very open to the idea of, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, last year you were hearing you identify as non-binary, but actually now you're saying you're pretty comfortable being um, a girl, which is how you've lived all your life, and biologically you're female. You know, it kind of doesn't work that direction. It works the other direction, mm. which partly I think is the social pressure that we've got over here of, in our uh, youth culture, in our culture at the moment, to be to be queer and to be trans is to be cool and to be to be straight and cis is the most boring thing and the worst thing possible because you're you're boring and you might well be homophobic or transphobic i think that's the kind of assumption there actually to be gay or same-sex attracted doesn't make you particularly popular or cool in the uk youth culture context my understanding is what really marks you out is being trans or or non-binary in some way and so i think there's a real openness to change of labels if it's in that direction if it's in the other direction, that doesn't seem to be, which is why we see you know, the sad reality of detransitioners who, yeah. again, legitimate experiences, it seems, who are often just trying to talk about their own experience and even talk about their own experience, let alone any comments on how that might impact the experience of others or suggestions of wisdom for how others handle their experiences, even sharing their own stories, get some kind of shut down. If people aren't open to hearing that, traitors and all those kind of um accusations made against them so there's an openness to fluidity but only if you're going in the right direction not if you're going in the wrong direction so is it are you are you at a place now not in the church but in the broader culture where yeah being gay or same-sex attracted or lesbian or whatever like these are just more kind of like how straight was 10 years ago it's kind of like eh, that's not a big deal anymore <laughs> like i think so i think especially among well y- yes i think that's true in wider culture i mean these things are not monolithic obviously but I think in some contexts I've heard that being gay or simply attracted as a teenager at school is not a easy experience, but being trans, you do become popular if you're the trans kid, the, the non-binary kid. And, you know, and there are some, you, you get some stories, there's no, so many things are feeding into trans identification on teenagers, I'm sure, but you get some stories where there's a kid who's kind of pretty unpopular, kind of on the edge and stuff, doesn't have many friends and stuff. They come out of trans, suddenly they're one of the most popular kids in school and they're the heart, you know, the the cool gang and stuff. And that could raise the question for us is for some young people, only some, is trans identification actually a way of 
rescuing themselves from the unpleasant situation they're finding themselves of maybe feeling rather left out rather overlooked not being one of the cool kids and actually it's a way to find some favor with people yeah and one of many many possible situations and the various situations of what are going on but it maps onto the experience and some of the stories yeah. you hear well and there's been several studies on it and that's i know they're politically incorrect to talk about and you certainly don't want to certainly don't want to say like <laughs> This is true of all people or whatever. And, and this is where I think older LGBT people who, you know, it wasn't, it was the opposite, right? Like they were mocked and, and abused and sometimes beat up. And, you know, so they had a really hyper different experience. It's hard for them, I think, sometimes to wrap their mind around being trans, being like elevating social status rather than being, you know, demonized. But yeah, I, I mean, it's, yeah, I, it's you know things have become so politicized. I'm always careful, like, ah, is this really true? Is this just like a in America, you know, is this a right wing talking narrative, or is it is this actually the case? But I just over and over and over again, it's just it's it is interesting that when I'm in more progressive cities, Portland, Seattle, um, New York, Chicago, whatever, like, and how you actually talk to kids and describe what's the social environment of school like, and it's it's exactly exactly that um, yeah yeah so uh, can you give us a firsthand i guess uh i mean you're in the uk because i i keep hearing that uh things have really shifted in the uk where the uk i always like to think is like you know five to ten years ahead of the u.s uh they're always more progressive than the u.s is it's funny i was i was uh <laughs> when i was in cambridge i was i was at a I was at a pub talking to a couple of guys and one guy described himself as, you know, I, I'm, I'm a left, I'm a left winger. I'm like, Oh, so you, you probably like, you know, we got Bernie Sanders, you know, he's like, Oh no, he's way too right wing for me. I was like, <laughs> there's not a, there's not a person in America who would ever use the word right wing to describe Bernie Sanders, but, but that just shows how I think he even says, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Marxist socialist, you know, and, and Bernie's just, you know, might as well be Donald Trump, you know, from his perspective. So what's here's my I'm going with this. It's interesting that as in this conversation, the UK was kind of more progressive than the US, leading the way, you know. Um, but then now they're pulling back with some of the gender stuff because they're seeing that they, I don't know, for lack of better terms, went too far, kind of like, oh my gosh, like now we have all these detransitioners and, you know, you have the case of Kira Bell, you know, they, they went all the way to the high court where she detransitioned and felt like she was rushed through early transition as a confused teenage girl is in her own words, you know, is that, are you seeing that firsthand that, that like there is some, even from secular liberal, whatever, some rethinking their policies? Definitely. Definitely. And I think, I think there's almost like there's been this, um, as I guess these things happen, this ground level beginnings of movements, things like, yeah, Kira Bell's personal experience and other people like that have similar experiences and then the court case but then also kind of whistleblowers at Tavistock which is the under 18s gender identity clinic here in the UK who were raising concerns about safeguarding young people in these contexts raising concerns about whether young people were too quickly being given access to puberty blockers say or, or mastectomies and different things that has happened. Parents began to talk out. There's quite a good kind of ground level parent movement here of parents who are concerned about what the young people are being told at school, what's happening at gender clinics, different kind of things. It's kind of gradually worked its way up. So now we are at the stage where there's a government commissioned independent review into the under 18s NHS um, gender identity services, and called the CAS review. So uh, oh. Lady Hilary Cass, who's a very experienced pediatrician, is leading this independent review into it which then re released an interim um, report 
uh, I forget exactly when, some a number of months ago now, uh, which basically was raising huge concerns about how the NHS services have been um, acting. The the kind of specification of the um, whatever it's called overview they're doing isn't to decide on um, kind of the philosophical questions of is there such right. a thing as a trans kid, but actually of how do we help these young people who are experiencing gender dysphoria questioning their their gender. On the basis of the interim report, and I think this is interesting, even on the basis of the interim report, even before they've got the full report, they now basically they're going to close the Tavistock clinic at the start of next year. And they've just recently released the interim specification, which is kind of the proposals for the replacement. And basically, it is a significant shift from what was predominantly an affirming approach, as in you assume that what the young person is saying about themselves and how they feel themselves to be is who they are. So you do use names and pronouns Mm -hmm. as they request you do fairly quickly move to various forms of um, social and medical intervention. The flip now basically is the default now is a non-affirmative approach. So only extreme cases of um, demonstrable clinical distress will um, names and pronouns, for example, be used in line with what the young person wants rather than with their given name, pronouns, along with their biological sex and stuff. And so it's a, a complete swing because the CAST review showed there really is evidence that even social transition is quite a significant psychosocial intervention is the term it has big impacts we know there's the evidence that many young people will find that if those interventions don't take place their feelings of discomfort will naturally resolve Mm -hmm. we know that these social interventions make it less likely that will happen Mm. therefore that seems to be not the best way of treating young people and also there's the cast review has highlighted what was already known which is the way the cohort of young people being referred to gender identity services are not reflecting the general population. Much higher levels of mental health diagnoses, of um, ASD, autistic traits, of traumatic experiences, a much higher number of children who are in care, who are looked, looked after children has been noticed. And people are now rightly asking the questions, why is it that actually mm. this cohort of young people isn't representative of the rest of the population? And realising those things tend to get overlooked because gender just takes over. We need to help young mm. people think about traumatic experiences and how they work through those. Think about um, whether they might have autism and how they begin to understand themselves, if that is the case. Think about how they handle mental health. So we're moving towards a much more holistic kind of approach to this. And the other thing that's happened is one particular very prominent um, kind of trans teen charity that supports young people towards an affirmative approach has been through a load of scandals about various trustees and people they were linked to and advice they were given to young people the charity commission is now doing an independent review into them so they're kind of crumbling too so it's kind of worked from the ground up that suddenly now on a policy level positive things are happening towards the safeguarding of young people. That, I mean, that that's pretty remarkable in, in a society that, again, is fairly progressive, speaking as from an American perspective, where Bernie Sanders is seen as a right winger, that there would be such, I don't want to say drastic, but I think maybe just some pullback on the trend. Because we don't, we don't, yeah. we still don't have that in the U.S. yet. And I keep telling people that everything, it's, we kind of follow along the European countries typically. And so give it, mm. I, I keep saying two to five years and I think there's going to be some rethinking. The only difference though, is that our healthcare system, somebody explained to me and I, I'm not an expert in this at, at all, but it's because I, I, I used to say, well, give it a few years. There's gonna be so many lawsuits now uh, like Kira Bell's case. Yeah. I mean, money talks. And so when you get enough doctors being sued, they're going to start to rethink 
you know, are we really yeah. treating these kids well? But the the healthcare system here is so protected legally that as long as there's some kind of consent form signed or they're, they're no, there's not going to be a lot of pressure from lawsuits or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but even ideological, but then I don't know, like WPATH just released the, the world professional, what is it? Um, of transgender association for transgender health. Yeah. World. Yeah. They released a, the recent kind of like standard of cares act or whatever the standard of cares. And it's the same, if not even more, yeah yeah gender affirming than there always was you know and and i still when i talk to doctors here there's still this like oh yeah you don't question the gender affirming approach at all because you'll be accused of killing trans kids because if you don't if you're not fully gender affirming then you're you know increasing suicidality which is you know so i don't see i don't see it yet changing in the, in the states but no i think there are good groups in the states people like gen Spectre and stuff who are trying to get you know evidence-based medicine and it's evidence-based yes. responses yeah. to this kind of work and that but i yeah, I have less insight, I guess, than the United States, but I think that's the case. I think in terms of the, you know, isn't it surprising that we who, yeah, are kind of in, in to use these terms, a very progressive liberal society and stuff, we are the ones who are, I think, pioneering in some ways, actually, a, a change on this. I think, though, it is because what's being shown is harm. And the one thing in our secular okay. liberal society that matters is harm. Yeah. So, okay. so the reason uh, I, I've always said the tide will turn on the trans situation, trans teen, especially in a way it won't sexuality, is because there is demonstrable evidence of harm. And so what's happening basically is we are looking at how we've treated teenagers in the last 10 years when they've um, reported gender dysphoria and we referred to our National Health Service and realised that actually the way we've been treating them has not been based on solid evidence, may well have done harm. And so actually that's, you know, it's the harm argument is always powerful. Yeah. Um, and particularly in secular cultures like ours, harm becomes the only basis, the only common basis right, for okay. ethics. So I, whether that will work out in the States, I don't know, but I'm not overly surprised it's happening here. It has happened quicker than I thought it would. Yeah. But because I think there is, and there will increasingly be both evidence of harm and also evidence that we just don't know if some of this stuff is safe, that does fit the kind of thing that would cause us to change. And just to be clear for people listening that may be like, oh, this is all kind of new to me. Like, you know, you have different standards of care for let, let's just focus on teens, um, you know, who are wrestling with their gender identity. You know, the the gender affirming approach is kind of like if someone says they're trans, then they are trans. And you don't really explore kind of the holistic psychological well-being of the person because you don't at all. It's like there's such an allergic reaction against like even hinting that their gender dysphoria could be linked to some kind of psychological condition they're wrestling with. And yet, I mean, you said it, and there's been studies done that like, you know, I think over or just about 50% of trans identified teens are wrestling with at least one, if not several other mental health issues that again, according to one study, a small percentage of caretakers chose to even explore, you know, that this person had past trauma. They went through two divorces. They were sexually abused as a kid. They have been diagnosed as bipolar. But if they say they're trans, sometimes everything else just takes a back seat. Let's just focus yep. on affirming your trans identity, not exploring maybe the, the maybe more complicated psychological um, web that could be surrounding this identity. Um, so it's not, it's not even like, it's not, it's not even like a, liberal versus conservative thing. It's just there's several different, historically, there's been several different approaches to uh, j treating or working with somebody with gender dysphoria. And I think the UK and other, or, or even like um, the Nordic countries or Sweden, you know, yeah, 
where there's more of a watchful waiting. Let's just not intervene. Let's just see the biological process just play out. Or, or um, oh, who was it? I'm blanking on his name. He was an expert in gender dysphoria who the biopsychosocial approach where you explore the biology, explore the psychology, explore this the social side of and so you explore the holistic person you know and, and just rather than just rushing them through medicalization and i do think the ascendancy that we had seen though it's now going back down of the affirmative approach as described is rooted in what i'm talking about in this book of an i decided entity is rooted in the idea that who we really are is found inside that we really do have this thing called a gender identity and that really does dictate who we are as a man or a woman and which of course the interesting thing there is that's not actually a biological and medical fact there's no way you can prove the reality of a gender identity there's no scan you can do test you can do to isolate someone's gender identity mm. and so what's very interesting i think is the affirmative approach to trans medicine is kind of based on this philosophical idea of this internal gender identity and that internal our internal self reveals who we really are rather than being based as now i think this kind of pushback over here is or actually let's do some hard studies and look at the research and work out what actually does and doesn't prove life-giving to people what is actually going on yeah. and so i i would actually submit that i think one of these cultural narrative identity that i talk about in the book has kind of infiltrated our understanding of an experience and even infiltrated medical responses to it and the positive step that's been taken now is actually maybe this isn't about identity, but maybe it's a very real experience. And so let's explore what that experience is and how we best help people in that circumstance rather than just jumping to it's who they are, we've got to affirm it. So I think it, although it's, you know, the medical world, it's actually very rooted in philosophy and thinking. Yeah. Even if it's not explicitly said that it is, it just is, right? I mean, or, or it's also like, and I'm not sure. I think you guys have the same thing there as we do here. Just this conflation of, you know, soji, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we know that sexual orientation is often has biological factors, at least is is often unchangeable. Sometimes there's fluidity, you know, sexual fluidity within an orientation. But typically people don't swing from genuinely like attracted to the same sex, opposite sex, you know. Um, so sexual orientation has this kind of more, more, maybe in, I'll say innate. Whereas, and, and if you just assume gender identity is kind of like the, the the stepchild of that or whatever, it's, but it's not. Gender identity is it does is yeah. it's, it's so different than sexual orientation just on a philosophical level. Which is why I mean I honestly think, and I would say this if I wasn't a Christian, this isn't like a theological observation, but the whole soji I think is just disastrous really <laughs> i mean yeah no i agree yeah like the conflation of the two i do agree yeah. and then the you know i think you're right i think as a non-christian with no theist outlook you can say that but then i always want to put in it but as christians actually we get to bringing also the yeah. the christian or judeo-christian perspective of and because there's real people here we're having very different experiences and we care about the real people so let's actually treat people as people find about their own experience rather than having this yeah lumped together thing of actually very diverse experiences which doesn't actually help us to love and care for individuals well and actually i think the kind of more people-centered approach actually something we as christians should be championing for right because we are people-centered people <laughs> because we have a people-centered god who cares about our well-being us and our own experiences and so i always want to encourage christians these aren't just kind of you know 
medical clinical debates actually they're also places where we want to bring in the heart of god and the care for a person not just an issue or topic talk to a parent right now who has a 13 to 17 year old kid who just came out as trans or non-binary gender fluid how should the parent love their child well how should they respond mm-hmm. first thing i want to say to bring in that context is don't panic <laughs> i think often that is just our response yeah. just don't panic uh don't for the world's about to fall apart don't feel going to rush to do anything much one key thing would be just to talk to the young person and just find out more from them again it's validating them as an individual don't assume you know what they mean when they say that and just spend lots of time listening before you say anything actually mm-hmm. you know, you're saying you know identify as non-binary help me understand what you mean by that or you say actually you feel that you're um that you're actually a boy just help me understand what do you mean by that actually how long have you felt this and what's it been like for you to feel that because what you're doing is you're you're more deeply understanding their experience which is going to be helpful for loving them well and responding well but you're also just loving them in that and what you're showing them is even if actually you might not agree with some of how they're viewing themselves or some of the decisions they want to make about how they're now going to live you do care about them as an individual it's a completely different message that sends to a young person than immediately going, well, oh, no, you're not trans. Don't be silly. No, you're not changing your name. No, it's not happening. We don't do that in this household. That's just crushing a young person. But actually, that sounds like it's been really hard for you. Please tell me some of what that's been like. Tell me some of just what do you mean? Help me understand what you mean when you say you feel this way. That might then have actually some openings. When someone says, well, I feel like a girl because this is and this, that might be a place to, well, but actually, can't boys be like that? You know, it might be a place to just throw some seeds of doubt because it might well come down to, as we've kind of said, um, stereotypes and stuff. Um, pray would be an obvious one, but I think just let's not overlook that. Let's get some wisdom from God on that. Be prepared for the fact that it will be a, a long journey. I don't think these things resolve quickly. But actually, especially with teenagers, no, actually, it's that they're on that journey to independence anyway. So it's much more than walking alongside as parents as well and walking with them on the journey and being aware of what else might be at play. We've talked about the fact that all the stats show that co-occurring mental health conditions, ASD characteristics, trauma, uh, internal homophobia, all these kind of things are very often present. So you as a parent might already Mm. be aware that actually your young person was diagnosed with depression, say, or exhibiting a potential um, experience of depression, or actually there are some ASD characteristics there, or actually they'd already been identifying as bisexuals, they're already questioning their gender. And just keeping those things being aware of them, having them in conversation, continuing to explore those, get support for those as necessary to kind of keep it broad. And just a final one, yeah, I think it's a key thing for parents in this situation is not to let gender become the be-all and end-all of the relationship and the family and the conversation. Because so often what happens to these young people is they conclude that they are transgender and that becomes their world. And getting testosterone when it comes to their world and they falling into an online world where all that matters is that. And very often the story is they give up on other hobbies, they give up on mm-hmm. in-person friendships, they descend into this online world where it's gender, 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 gender. And a bit like we said earlier about how terms can unhelpfully reinforce things mm-hmm. for us, so can the narrowing of our world down to that. And so actually encouraging and helping your young person keep involved in your know, active hobbies they enjoy, seeing other friends, just talking to them about plenty of other things that aren't gender just helps keep their world broader than the gender and also shows that you are not obsessed about their gender, but you really love them. You love them beyond the gender questions as well. So there's just some really practical, helpful things about keeping life a lot broader than gender. 
to stop a young person getting fixated on kind of falling down the rabbit hole of that's all that that matters. Andrew, that's a great, great word. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of parents listening that will be really blessed by that. Uh, really excited about your book, uh, Finding Your Best Identity. What's the subtitle again of the book? Um, a Short Christian Introduction to Identity, Sexuality, and Gender. Right. It's a great book. I'm excited to yeah have people get a hold of it. So people always ask me, where can I find it? <laughs> There's this thing called Amazon <laughs> or, know, or just yeah. Google it. I'm sure you'll figure it out. But uh, Andrew, thank you so much for your work at Living Out and for uh, your writing. I hope you write uh, 20 more books <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> love, love, love all the stuff you it's put out. Challenge. Thank you. Yeah. All right. God bless. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 